turn to Ephesians 4. I'll read verses 7 through 13. From Ephesians 4, we're not going to cover all of those verses today, but I want to read them in order to kind of get our context. Uh, If you're new to the class, generally I will speak for an extended period of time, and there's always time at the end uh, for questions or thoughts, so if you have those forming throughout, there will be a good time for them. Uh, Follow as I read Ephesians 4, 7 through 13. This is the Word of God. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Amen. Um, So, as we talked about the last couple weeks, in the first six verses of this chapter, Paul laid out the unity that God has established in the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Uh, We read things like, there is one Lord, Jesus. We're, We're united in His one body. By the Holy Spirit, we have the same one true God and Father. Uh, who is sovereign over all. So verses 1-6 through are concerned with unity. God has established that unity, and we are called to eagerly seek to maintain that unity with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 7 and following are still concerned with unity, but we also get more of a glimpse into the diversity uh, that we find in the body of Christ. Speaking of different gifts. So verse 7, grace was given to each one of us. Verse 8, Jesus ascended back to heaven and He gave gifts to men. Verses 11 and 12, uh, some different gifts are mentioned and we see that everyone has a role to play in the ministry of the Lord. Peter talks about this in more detail. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So the word varied there literally means multicolored meaning uh, God's grace uh, has been given to each one of us individually and it looks different in each of us. It's multicolored. So we see these themes of unity and diversity right there side by side. Diversity, God's grace is multicolored. Uh, God has uniquely gifted all of us. Unity, God has gifted us all so that we would use the gifts He's gifted us with in order to serve Him and, and serve one another. So here's an important takeaway already. Uh, In a church like ours, we regularly say that we would like to be more diverse. Meaning, we wish we had a little bit more racial diversity or socioeconomic diversity. Uh, And I would say there's nothing wrong with that and even that we're slowly getting there. But we can't forget, even in a church like ours, or even if it were 
that our church were all exactly the same color and from the same exact tax bracket, God's grace would still be multicolored in our congregation. Uh, There would still be great diversity in that we're all gifted uniquely. And there's great beauty when those various gifts learn how to work in unity uh, together. Okay, Uh, so when we get to verses 11 and 12, we're going to talk more about diversity and the gifts that God has given to the church. But today I want to talk just more at kind of the big picture level, uh, just about the significance of the fact that God has poured out His grace uh, to gift the church. I want to talk about that from the vantage point of heaven because that's really what verse 8 is all about. So uh, let's dig into verse 8. When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. First things first, just to get our bearings, we're talking about Jesus. Uh, Verses 9 and 10 tell us that. He who descended into the earth is also He who ascended. Now descending into the earth could either mean... uh, Talking, could either be talking about when Jesus initially came down from heaven to live, die, etc., or it could be talking about the fact that He died. Um, but either way, it's talking about Jesus, he, uh, he who ascended back to glory after He descended. This ascension was talked about at the end of chapter 1, verse 20. You may remember, it says, uh, He raised Him, that is, God raised Jesus from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Does anybody remember uh, what it's talking about in saying that Jesus has been placed above all rule and authority and power and dominion? That He simply has uh, all authority over everything, heaven and earth. Not only talking about earthly rulers and authorities, but also spiritual rulers and authorities. Right, there you go. Jesus not only has uh, all authority over earthly kingdoms, but He also has all authority over Satan and demons and the kingdom of darkness. Uh, Jesus and Satan are not in a tug of war. We're not left waiting in suspense to see who wins. Jesus said checkmate in His death, resurrection, and ascension. So this is what chapter 4, verse 8 is talking about. It says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives. Um, If in your Bible, like mine, you have little coordinates in the margin, uh, you'll notice that verse 8 is a quotation from Psalm 68, 18 which uh, begins like this. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. Now, uh, before we get ahead of ourselves, I want to, I guess, prove how we know that this host of captives is talking about Satan and demons particularly. So if you've been asleep to this point, uh, you're going to have to think with me at least for a few minutes. Uh, How do we know that the host of captives are talking about Satan and demons in verse 8? Well, i say it certainly fits with what we know from chapter 1, that God raised Jesus from the dead, brought Him back to heaven, and gave Him all authority over all things, heaven and earth. Uh, We get even more clarity on that in Colossians 2, so if you want to turn there, feel free to, just a few pages to the right of Ephesians. Colossians 2, verse 15.
which says this, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. He uh, is God, as the preceding context makes clear. It's saying God disarmed the rulers and authorities, triumphing over them in Christ. So who are the rulers and authorities? Uh, I'm saying this refers to Satan and demons, but I want to check our work. So back to Ephesians. Look at uh, Ephesians 3, 9 and 10. Uh, Back in this part of Ephesians 3, Paul's talking about his role as an apostle, which was, verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Talking about the gospel, which was hidden for ages but has now been revealed. Uh, Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now we're going to come back to verse 10 in a little bit, but I just want you to see that last little phrase to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Um, So here we see that when Paul is referring to rulers and authorities, he says that they're in the heavenly places, they're spiritual rulers and spiritual authorities. Now look at Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12. It says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The devil, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'm just trying to show you how we arrive at the conclusion that Jesus' captives mentioned in, in chapter 4, verse 8, is referring to Satan and demons. Uh, we see that, you know, number one, the text says he led a host of captives when he ascended back to heaven. Number two, we look back and we see about that ascension. And, and when he ascended, he was given all authority over all things, heaven and earth. Um, we see that Paul uses this language quite a bit of rulers and authorities, Colossians 2, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 6. And it becomes especially clear in Ephesians 6 when he talks about this. He's talking about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when, when Jesus ascended back to heaven, he led a host of captives in his train. Those captives were Satan and demons. As Colossians 2.15 says, in Christ, Satan and demons have been disarmed and put to open shame. It doesn't just say they will be disarmed and they will be put to open shame. It doesn't say that at all. It says they were disarmed and and that God has already triumphed over them in Christ. Um, We've talked about this in here before, but I want to tell you again what that means. First, I'll illustrate it. uh, Because this language of Jesus leading a host of captives in His train is supposed to conjure up an image in our mind. Remember that the original quotation is from Psalm 68, uh, which was written by David. Who was David? King of Israel. Israel, The greatest king that the nation of Israel ever had. Hey man, that was good. And, uh, And because David's reign involved great military conquest over enemy nations, we find that many of the psalms that he wrote involve talk of conquest over enemies. 
Psalm 68 starts this way. It says, God shall arise, His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate Him shall flee before Him. All to say, when we read, when we get to verse 18 and we read about a host of captives being led in His train, uh, the image that is supposed to be stirred up is an image of military conquest. So, imagine in David's day, they're warring with these surrounding nations. Uh, let's say they go out to fight the Amalekites, and they conquer the Amalekites. And what happens then is David leads this triumphal procession back through the city, uh, Jerusalem, and all of the cheering crowds are standing and going, you know, hooray for David, our great king, who, uh, you know, Saul killed thousands, David ten thousands, and, and he is the conquering king. So you have all of you have David, you have the army that comes back to the applause of the people, and then behind them you have a train of captives. You have the Amalekites, the ones that weren't, you know, slaughtered, uh, in chains following this triumphal procession. So of course David's focus uh, on is on the enemy nations of his day in, in Psalm sixty eight. But God the Holy Spirit, who authored Psalm 68 through David, was looking forward to the day when all God's enemies would be conquered through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who after His resurrection ascended back to heaven, was given all authority over heaven and earth, so that He is not just King over Israel, but King over everyone and everything, even the conquering King over Satan and demons. Um. The image of leading a train of captives is supposed to stir up this image of a conquering king leading his, clan, his captives through the cheering crowds. So the picture is when Jesus ascended back to heaven, He walked Satan and demons through the cheering crowds. So I picture Adam and Eve once having been duped by Satan, not only to the detriment of of their own souls, but uh, also to the detriment of the entire human race. I picture Adam and Eve cheering Jesus in victory. I picture Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I picture Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and King David and Sarah and Hannah. I picture all of the true believers who had gone before alongside the angels shouting and glorying in triumph in Jesus over Satan, sin, and death. Um... One thing this means is that whatever role Satan and demons play in the here and now, they do not have free reign. They are Jesus' captives. They are only allowed to influence things as much as Jesus wants them to influence things. And whatever influence they have, um, it is simply to advance God's purposes for the salvation of the whole world. And you might think, well... How could such pure evil be used for such pure good? Think about the cross. The greatest evil in human history was the murder of Jesus on the cross. The murder of God at the hands of sinful men. And yet, in the hands of God, that great evil has been used to accomplish the greatest good. The salvation of the world. Satan and demons were taken captive when Jesus ascended back to heaven. And whatever role they play now, 
They simply serve God's purposes in advancing this great salvation. Our text goes on. He ascended, He led a host of captives, then He gave gifts to men. Um, I believe this is talking about the beginning of the church, uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Think about Pentecost at Acts 2. Uh, The Holy Spirit was poured out on all of Jesus' disciples. The church was born. God's multicolored grace on display. The the various gifts that He's given. um, And they're used in unity to grow the church and to reach the world. And ever since then, everyone who believes in Jesus is given the Holy Spirit. And, And when the Holy Spirit is given to an individual, certainly the ultimate gift of salvation is applied to that person. Uh, but he or she is also fitted with unique gifts to serve the Lord and serve the church and in order to reach the world so that the church continues to expand. This is how Jesus advances His kingdom conquest. So, um, I want us to think for a minute about this uh, from the vantage point of our text. He ascended, led a host of captives, Satan and demon. Gave, he gave gifts to men. Think about all the way back to the beginning. Satan appears on the scene in God's good creation. Uh, He deceives the woman. He leads mankind into sin and destruction. In fact, every ounce of sin and destruction and death in the history of the world can be traced back to that fateful day. Every single broken relationship, every single ounce of lust, every angry outburst, every murder, every lie, every instance of disobedience to God by any human being, any time, every bit of grief, every bit of death. Satan took the world captive, leading us into sin, and because of sin, death, and if left to ourselves, eternal destruction. But God did not leave us to ourselves. Jesus did not leave His creation in captivity Jesus came to earth to set the captives free. He said to Himself, in fact, that's the way He started His ministry. He went into the synagogue in His hometown of Nazareth to read from the scroll of Isaiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He has anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. Liberty for captives. Then He rolled up the scroll. He said, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning, I am the fulfillment. He is. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus' death and resurrection is liberty to captives. And after He died and rose, He ascended back to heaven, He poured out His Holy Spirit, and He set in motion this global application of setting the captives free. But that's not all. Because before He began to pour out the Holy Spirit, He led Satan and demons in a train, as captives. So the one who led creation into captivity, Satan, was himself taken captive by Jesus who began to pour out the Holy Spirit in order to set the captives free. So I I tried to think about this. uh, What must Jesus be saying at that time? I can imagine Jesus saying to Satan as He says to us in Matthew 16, I will build My church and there's nothing you can do about it. I can imagine Jesus saying to Satan, I will break their chains, but your chains, Satan, cannot be broken. I can imagine our Lord saying to Satan, you may have had your way with creation, 
But there is not a thing you can do to destroy the new creation. Checkmate. I win. There's great personal comfort here for us. Um, Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. We have been set free. Uh, There is nothing Satan can do to bring us back into our original captivity. Right now, in heaven, Jesus stands in victory over Satan, sin, and death. Uh, We have been called into this great salvation. We are captives that have been liberated, no longer captive. And we have been uniquely gifted by Christ our victor in order to spread this great victory to the ends of the earth. So not only is there nothing Satan can do to take away our personal salvation, but there's nothing he can do to derail the inevitable spread of salvation in Christ to every tribe, every tongue, every people, um, every nation. Of course, we live in the in-between. The time between when... Jesus took Satan and demons captive in a train in heaven and the time when He returns to publicly display that victory on earth. At that time, Satan and demons will be fully and finally destroyed for all the world to see. In the meantime, they're allowed to exist in whatever capacity the Lord has decided is useful for advancing His purposes. Uh, We're going to spend more time in chapter 6 talking about how to stand against the schemes of the devil in the here and now. But here's a preview. Just as I scanned chapter 6, here's a preview of how we're instructed to stand against the schemes of the devil. Number one, believe the gospel. Satan will speak condemnation to your soul, and in response, we don't need to say a thing to him. We simply need to cling to the precious truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Next, stand firm in the truth. Satan is influencing the world otherwise, but he is a liar and he's on the losing team. So if you already know that he's on the losing team, why in the world would you want to go join him? Stand firm in the truth no matter what the world around you is doing. Next, trust the Lord. Meditate on His Word day and night. Serve others. Share the good news with those who are lost. Pray at all times. Work hard. Persevere. The interesting thing uh, to me about how we are instructed to stand against the schemes of the devil is that none of it involves giving much attention to the devil at all. It involves giving full attention, heart, mind, soul, and strength to the Lord. One of the things that the devil wants from us is that we give him too much attention or we give him too much credit for what we see going on in our lives or going on in the world. Um, But the way we declare his defeat is not necessarily saying anything to him at all. He knows his defeat when sinners embrace the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and are set free to worship and serve the Lord. In reality, the best way we can interact with Satan is to worship and serve the Lord. The thing that Satan intended to do uh, was to separate us from God. And you could say he was successful temporarily, uh, but that separation has been, um, we've been reconciled in Christ. Now, remember back to Ephesians 2 and 3, which basically said, God poured out His grace on us. He brought us from death to life. He united us as His church, 
And now, and this is back to that passage from earlier, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Meaning, as the church gathers to worship the Lord in sermon and song, in prayer and sacrament, we are declaring and singing and praying and seeing and eating and drinking Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, and death. And Satan and the demons see it. That's what that says in chapter 3, verse 10, that, that the wisdom of God is now on display for the rulers and authorities to see. So as the church gathers to worship today, all over the world, we are triumphantly declaring the wisdom of God to Satan and demons. The wisdom of God in using a great evil, the murder of Christ, to ultimately conquer evil. The wisdom of God in sending Jesus to conquer Satan, sin, and death. They are His captives. We are set free. So let us prepare our hearts for worship. Let's pray. Our Father, we may never know, we won't ever know, the, uh, the fullness of our captivity. Uh, we were not made to see the ends of our captivity, which would have been eternal separation and destruction under Your wrath. But Lord, You, because of Your great love, uh, made a way and saw fit to save us. Lord Jesus, we believe that You have indeed conquered Satan and sin and death. Uh, we trust You. We, we can't possibly thank You enough, but we do want to say thank You. Uh, Lord, give us wisdom as to how we are to live in the meantime. It seems to me that uh, the best thing we can do to declare uh, your victory over Satan, sin, and death is simply to worship you and serve you in obedience to you uh, the rest of our days. We need grace for the forgiveness of our sins. We need grace to empower us uh, to new life, to love and good deeds. And so we pray that you pour out your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have a few minutes for thoughts and or questions. Not all at once. <laughs> I have a question. Josh. So, if Jesus has already won and paraded everybody in defeat, or Satan means, then why is there still, I guess, a fight? Mm -hmm. And is it different than before his resurrection? Yeah. Um, well, why is there it still? Doesn't seem like there's. It seems I've never thought there'd be a difference. I guess. Yeah. In the fight of a believer, I guess, or the relationship between demons and Satan. You mean before and after between Jesus and Satan? No, I mean like between God's covenant people and demons and Satan. Right. Practically, there doesn't necessarily seem to be right a difference. Well, first question, why is there still a fight? I mean, 
can help me, but I just think, like I said, you know, the world was so corrupted by sin, and God is committed to saving uh, the fullness of His people over history, and so uh, He has permitted that sin and evil still exist until the day that He finally conquers it, when He has, you know, filled up the role of the elect. And uh, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, but. I guess it just seems weird that I would wonder if it would refer to something. Like the later, like the second coming. You mean the... It doesn't talk future tense really at all. Right. But that seems like that would be the final. Right. That's when you parade everybody through to show final judgment. Sure. Well, I think think that that is what's going to happen as we're all gathered together and that scene is publicly displayed for all to see because certainly we didn't see that, you know... um, and when Satan and demons and all evil and sin are finally and fully destroyed, um, we will. That will happen. Uh, so I I always go back to the already not yet. Maybe there already has been that train of captives, which I certainly believe um, in heaven. Um, and then there will be another display of that victory fully on earth. But. That's right. Yeah, I mean, what as far as letting evil exist and you know, and not ultimately extinguishing it now, because that would mean extinguishing people that are in of themselves evil until they <coughs> cling to the one who is not. Still something hanging? Okay. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> Here's another way I thought about to interact with Satan. Uh, I thought about Will's comments from last week. And he said this, if you weren't here. Uh, we're talking about unity in the body of Christ. How it's interesting when, when Paul begins to tell us how to live out this great salvation. The first thing he deals with is unity in the church. And uh, unity in the body of Christ. And so, um, that's significant because it's so vital to the advancement. Uh, But Will said that the number one reason missionaries leave the mission field is because of infighting, because they can't get along with their team. Not because of hunger, not because of lack of finances, but because they can't get along with other Christians. Um, I I think Satan loves to see that. But one of the best ways that we can show Him His defeat is to work eagerly uh, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. Again, one of the best ways we can seek to show Him His defeat is to work eagerly to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ. Satan hates this. He intended to destroy not only unity between God and man, but also among men. Uh, He is the great divider. And even when mission teams or churches break up due to infighting, we also know that God is able to take that evil and advance it uh, for His good. So, and Marriott Rogers brought this to my attention last week, and I thought it was an excellent addition to our conversation, but uh, we can pray that God would unify the fragments. When, When churches break up, Mission teams break up. We can pray that God would create a unity at least in the fragments 
um, and, and use that to, now we have more teams to spread the gospel. It's like Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. Uh, they split up due to a disagreement, yet God formed new teams, one with Paul, one with Barnabas, and God used them to continue His work. Uh, one that has been near and dear to my heart is the story of Mars Hill Church because when I was a brand new Christian and I wasn't connected to a local church, uh, I was listening to a guy named Mark Driscoll religiously on the app. Uh, and Mars Hill Church app in Seattle, uh, the Lord really blessed their ministry to where it grew to 16 churches in that region, uh, which is Seattle was at the time the most unchurched city in the nation. Um, but that church in the last year or so has, it's, it's done. It's split up uh, due to some sin issues. And yet, while they may not have 16 congregations, I think they do have something like 11 or 12 that are now, you know, their own congregation spread throughout that region. And you can see how God can use that. God, even though there was breakup and fracture and hurt, um, God can use that to advance His purposes. So that's it. Really helps us to know how to pray. I mean, as Will talks about, we're, he's seeing it left and right. Missionary teams breaking up. Well, we could pray that they stop it, and we could also pray that that God use the fragments to continue to spread the gospel. Okay. Anybody else? Could we think uh, what is our uh, what, what do you think a proper view of how we should interact or engage with Satan is or should we at all um, I was thinking about the story you know, she used to throw the fist and stuff yeah <clears throat> well <clears throat> go ahead I don't know if there's like, is there a middle ground or is it just we need to have a healthy or correct understanding um, but we're really not to engage with that or well certainly I mean there are whole swaths of Christianity that are actively seeking to engage with the demonic um, and I think are successfully engaging with the demonic, going looking for it. Um, I've told you guys before, when I was a Christian, uh, the kind of group I got set up with, I mean, there was a heavy emphasis on engaging in the demonic realm and, you know, I mean, uh, house cleaning type, I mean, it just sounds crazy, but just people wanting to go cast out demons and stuff like that. Uh, that's not our job. You know, that's not what we're here to do. And uh, there is an overemphasis at times on uh, just paying too much attention to them. Now, I don't think we're in danger of that a lot of times. I think we're maybe on the other end of the spectrum, not realizing that he's at work still. Because uh, he is. In whatever capacity the Lord allows, and we are commanded to you know, be on guard and and to know that there are schemes of the devil. But to answer your question, how do we then engage? I think Ephesians 6 gives us a great model and it's not to engage with him personally at all uh, or demons personally at all. It's to full, wholeheartedly engage with the Lord um, in believing the gospel, in worship, in service to him, in sharing Christ with others, in prayer. Um, And that's really the, the whole movement of Ephesians 6 is a wholehearted uh, embrace of the Lord in worship and service to Him. I think that's how we ought to engage with Satan, which is to say, not at all. We have uh, a 
focus on the flesh leads to death, and the focus on the spirit leads to life and peace. So it's this focus on evil leads to evil, and the focus right. on good leads to you know good model. Yeah, I mean, so I t- firmly believe that there is an active demonic realm. Uh, and again, I say, if you go looking for it, I believe you'll make contact, and uh, you will be in. They're stronger than you. Yeah, you'll be living in great fear. And that's really what ultimately happened to me is I found myself living in this constant fear. Uh, And so this whole idea of Christ's victory, His already victory, and certainly there is an aspect of this that is not yet, um, but it it became a great comfort to me in that um, he's, He's already won. And they're already defeated, and I don't need to pay them any attention, but just to rest in Christ, trust Him, uh, anyway, serve Him. <clears throat> Anyone else? It's a good thought. Are you talking about like when people say, like, <clears throat> they try to cast out demons and stuff? Like yeah. That about? Like when people talk like that? Yeah. Well, because that's a biblical idea. And be like, you yeah. Like well, and I'm not even saying that that can't still happen. Uh, I think it can. I, so, it's not to say that, that demons don't... I think demons still occupy people. Um, and yet, I don't think they occupy everyone who is sinful and different than me. And so, uh, you know... Certainly there's wisdom needed. I mean, there's stories from the mission field and things like that where you go into these tribal cultures and, and they're just demonic, you know, overcome. And I don't doubt that in certain contexts the Lord is going to show His power that He... But ultimately, this is the thing. He is still the one that has the authority. Um, and maybe there is a transfer of authority into those that He commissions. But to ever become over-occupied with those kinds of things. It's the same thing where has God given us all the Holy Spirit? Yes. People can become overoccupied with the gifts and things that God gives in the Holy Spirit. So when, when you do that, you're basically taking down your full armor of God. And so you're kind of... Yeah, I think so, because the, the, the direction of that uh, full armor of God passage is very much just Godwardness. You know, um, to these things have all been given... Uh, in Christ and to receive them and walk in them. You want to say something? Hmm? No. I have thoughts, but you're welcome to share them. Um, James talks about resist the devil. Yeah. But then it, it focuses on going toward God. But I keep thinking of the screw tape letters, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis, uh, screw tape letters kind of thoughts. Um, and I, in some parts of the world, you're going to see the demon possession. I don't know if we have that to worry about too much here. It's almost like that becomes um, fantasy. We see it on movies so much. It's a commonplace kind of idea. I think the devil sort of has his way with us in different ways. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, distraction and you know, placing car focus on maybe something else of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't really have to show up with demon possession <laughs> uh, here. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got us right where he wants us without. Mm-hmm. I guess commissioning one of his demons to possess. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're possessed with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's enough. But um, so, I don't know, uh, 
know, you don't see too much of it. It doesn't seem like it's too much here, but to affirm what you're saying, it seems like there is a good bit in places where demon possession really does take hold of the whole community. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a big deal in other well, and a lot of that is just actively seeking to worship false gods. Yeah. And there's one true God. And then there's the God of this world and all of his servants. And so, I mean, the God of, you know, darkness, Satan, and uh, who is no God. And even, it's interesting about that, the, the demons and all that. How does that work out? I'll tell you this. I know uh, for a fact that the demonic is actively engaged in the drug culture. Uh, because I lived in it and uh, experienced it. Um, I also know that the demonic is actively engaged wherever there's a false gospel, but I look at a lot of the New Age movement, and there's New Age spirituality sprinkled all throughout our country. Um, You know, people more and more seeking mediums and things like that. I mean, the thing about a medium is you're going to make contact. Again, like you go, you're going to come up with something uh, but it ain't the person you think you're contacting with. I can tell you that. Um, anyway, Godward focus. That's good. Yeah. All right, we got to go. Y'all have a good day. <laughs>